Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the first letter to the Corinthians. And we'll be looking at chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1 this morning. As we are right in the thick of December and in the midst of December, and of course, as children here are excited to know and do know, we're getting even closer to Christmas Day. And so we look with great anticipation and longing for that. But also along with that, over the years, you know, much has been made of really all sorts of things. You know, about various controversies that have come during Christmas time specifically. You know, happy holidays, merry Christmas, and so on. And I think most of you are rather familiar with all those. Now, there's certainly a place for discussing things like that. You know, people and us as believers, we want to make clear what Christmas is about, that Christmas is about Christ. We want to underline that, highlight that, preach that, proclaim that, that it's about Him. However, there's a deep need in the midst of Christmas for something more as well. And it's what Paul will be getting at this morning in our verses. And it's this question... What are you about during Christmas and even beyond Christmas? Are we clear and quick to proclaim that Christmas is about Christ? But then we need to ask, well, what about you? Are you about Christ? Not just in saying Christmas is about Christ, but your life is about Christ. And so this question is before us, what are you about during Christmas and even beyond Christmas? So what are we, what are you about, not just then, Christmas, December, holidays, but what are we about in all things, at all times, in all places, before, during, and after Christmas? That's the big question. Now that is a sweeping question as well. And so Paul, he intends his words this morning to have that sweeping effect over every area of our lives. And so it would not just swallow up December, but all of life right into it. And so to see this, let's look here then at our verses and passage here. And look at the word of God this morning, beginning here with chapter 10, verse 23. May the King of glory be glorified today at the reading and receiving and hearing and taking up of his word. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord.
words and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, when we think of idolatry today, it might be that often what comes to our minds are these kind of little figurines, you know, little wood or stone statues that represent these gods of days of old, you know, days gone by. And so when we think of them, we think, well, all of that was way back then, and we're not really dealing with that today. You know, those are all for the past and things that have happened, and so it's not really a challenge for us now. Well, the truth is, and if you remember even the last time I was up here and we walked through the previous verses in chapter 10, you know that is not the case. The truth is, idolatry is really not that far from each and every single one of us. It is even the word of our day. And by that, I mean it's the world that we're living in right now. Idolatry everywhere. And so Paul, he has made clear over the course of the last few chapters, chapters 8 through 10, just how pressing and serious idolatry is. You know, like a, a tsunami. And you know tsunamis, these massive waves as tsunamis come and they sweep away everything in its path paul would have us not be swept away by our idols and by idolatry what did he say we are to do when it comes to idolatry well he said in chapter 10 verse 14 he said that you are to run to flee from idolatry you don't run towards tsunamis unless you're crazy. <laughs> what do you do? Well, you run from them, which is what he called us to do, to run from these idols, to flee from idols. And so he here rounds off his discussion on idolatry, what we're to be about as a people on multiple levels in December in January, in March, in April, in June, in October, and so on throughout the year, what we are to be about as a people. And so he gives one after another here. And so first, 
what we are to be about as a people is we're to be a people who seek the good of others. We're to be a people who seek the good of others. Now, I think of, just in that point, you know, by itself, I think of Dane's sermon from last Sunday. I mean, what an appropriate exhortation from the book of Romans. Indeed, even that, that we would seek the good of others as those who are about the gospel, because those who are about the gospel do seek the good of others. We do love one another. We do have a gospel culture of love for one another. Now, that was Romans. We're not in Romans here this morning, and so let's dust off and knock down some of the cobwebs here. You know, remember the Corinthian context that we have here. Now, as you might recall, it was a city full of idols and idolatry and temples and pagan feasts. And so, again, imagining this picture, rather than churches everywhere around you, there were these big, imposing temples and altars devoted to the worship of these false gods of Apollo and Hermes and Athena and Poseidon and so on. And so it's within that context, believers, people came to faith in Christ out of that. In the midst of all those idols they were worshiping, they come out of that idolatry and they come to Christ the one true and living God, and they trust in him. And, you know, we might think, well, that was, that's interesting because they came out of idols and idolatry. Well, that is not different from what we experience today. When you come to faith in Christ, that's what's happening too. You're turning away from this idols and idolatry, and you're looking to the one true living God for the first time ever. And so it's, we're, we're very much in similar territory here, every single one of us in this room. They came out of that. We came out of that, even if you grew up in the church. And so we had these massive temples, these gods they were worshiping, but then along with that, in these temples as well, they would have these pagan sacrificial feasts And so Paul, he's addressed all that, right? He's talked about that. He talked about it in verses just above ours this morning. Well, there's another level here. Even in the meat market, there are these, the meat, it was also offered up to idols. So everywhere you went, I mean, this worship of false gods. And so believers are navigating this. Paul is instructing them on these things and saying, all right, here is how you need to think through these things. And so it is then that we come to verse 23 here. And Paul, he sets forth this slogan that was around at the time. And you'll remember it, or maybe you'll be like, well, wait a minute, didn't we hear this before in 1 Corinthians? Well, yeah, we did in chapter 6, verse 12. And what's the slogan? All things are lawful. And so he says that here in verse 23, and he takes up this slogan of their day, to teach them something, to teach them how they were not to think. And so it was not, I can do whatever I want. That's a sub-point under the first point. Not, I can do whatever I want. In the midst of a world of idols and idolatry, 
where desires are just rampant. Like you want something, you go after it. Like a hedonism, not Christian hedonism, just hedonism. You pursue after your pleasures and desires. Now that was something of the sense of that slogan. And, you know, some of you will recognize this, but free to do whatever fits your fancy kind of thing, right? You heard that phrase before, fits your fancy? Well, yes, that's what they were, were doing. And so today, though, you might think, well, that's interesting they had that slogan there, but we have that too. This same slogan is still going on today. And so today, this is what those slogans look like. And you'll, if you know our culture, you'll, you'll recognize these. One is, you do you, right? You do you, like you pursue whatever you like, whatever you want. You just be about you and yourself and your things, your decisions, your dreams, everything else. Or here's another one, and we've talked about this before in previous sermons, but follow your heart. I mean, I heard that, that phrase like three or four times this week from various movies and shows, especially Christmas ones. And if you, if you watch the Hallmark Channel, you're going to hear it almost in every single movie. <laughs> Christmas movie. Follow your heart, and my goodness, that's not good counsel. What, is, what does Jeremiah say? The heart is deceitful than all else? Who can understand it? You want to follow that? Really? This heart that is like rebellious and sinful and not, not really after the way of God and the, the things of God? Don't follow your heart. That's better counsel. Follow the word. Amen. And so there's one. And then maybe one more is write your own story. I mean... That's another aspect of this. You, you, you pave your own way. You follow your desires. You follow your dreams. You know, write your own story. You know, this kind of self-centered, me-centered life. And so this idea, this pursuing of your heart's desire is not new. I mean, that slogan we're hearing around us right now. I mean, it's the same thing going on in our day. And we can so often just live our lives without considering others, especially as Americans. You know, in other cultures, I mean, everything is family. Now, they have different struggles there, too. Everything is community in such a way the individual doesn't even come into the equation. But here, that's not the case. The individual is king. And so we can so often just kind of live in our own little cubicles, and we're fine with that. But that's not the biblical picture we have here. Now, as we see that, Paul is balancing some things here as well. He's, he's made clear believers do have freedom. And this is part of the challenge. Here's meat. Here are these feasts. You know, here are these idols and these things and food and I, food devoted to idol. What do we do with all those things? So we do have Christian liberty, but as we've seen, it is a gospel-wrought Christian liberty. But this isn't that. This slogan, all things are lawful. That's not it. Do as you please. Do whatever you like. Christian liberty is to be looked at and understood with a gospel lens. 
like, like this. Glass is perfect, perfect example. How are we to see the world? Everywhere, everything. It's not this. Like, I can't see you guys. You're all blurry right now. Well, that's, that's basically looking through the eyes of the world. You know, not really, but saying this analogy, you know, you can't see things rightly. I don't see things rightly. I don't see everything as they are, but as you see it then through the gospel lens, it all comes into focus. And you're to see all of life that way. Yourself, this church, the pews, everything, which is where Paul is headed. And so he says... Continuing verse 23, you know, all things are lawful. And then he gives these two phrases here. Not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. And so the words that he uses there are important. So we know these. Helpful, like it's good. Profitable, you know, build up. So like edify, strengthen, encourage. So in those words he's saying the Christian life is not just about you about what you want and we need to hear this over and over again you are not king Jesus is so instead of that asking you know what do I want my desires are central rather ask how can I bless How can I help? How can I encourage? And how can I build up others? This is what he's getting at with verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, as we see that, we may say amen to that. But so often, what won't happen is we will not be about others and even aim at encouraging others unless we are intentionally specifically strategically aiming at this and what i mean is is this won't just happen it's something that you and i must specifically aim at and work at ourselves it's about aiming yourself like asking how can i bless this other person where our natural inclination so many times can be just like, you're not, that's not even on your radar. You're just thinking about, well, I've got this going on, this going on, this going on. Instead, is how can I kind of come out of myself in view of gospel lenses and think of others and their good and bless them? Why? Because you long to see them flourish. It's asking, how can I bless others? And you're aiming at it. Not in theory, not in the abstract, specifically. You know, and I, I love this about Megan. You know, how often, my wife Megan, here, and so how often the Lord has used her in my life towards exactly this kind of mentality. I mean, she's always asking over and over again, how can she bless someone else? You know, how can we bless other people? Even asking, all right, who can join us in blessing these other people as well? And I, I love that about her. And it's, you know, it's just so easy to just think of ourselves. To not even have that question and those questions before us. And so this passage, 
is exhorting you and me out of ourselves towards an other-orientedness, not a self-centeredness. And as I say that, that's not just limited to family. Now that's going to be the easy thing for every single person here. And I know we all have our conflicts in family and stuff like that, but I guarantee you we're going to be there generally for our families. And so that's the easy thing. You know, is caring for your family, your blood family. But this goes beyond that and outside of that as well. It won't just happen that you bless other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to ask, how can I discipline myself? Like, make it, you think of reading your Bible? What if we said, I'm going to make this a discipline? Service is a discipline. And I'm going to aim, just as I get up in the morning and read my Bible and pray, I'm going to make it a discipline to think strategically, how can I serve and bless other people? That's the kind of thing that we need to be aiming at. Not in theory, but asking how can I care for and build up others and help them flourish with gospel lenses. Not American lenses, gospel lenses. And so we see that. We see this first point here that we are to be a people who seek others' good, but then also, second, We're to be a people who do everything to the glory of God. Everything to the glory of God. So Paul's points in verses 23 through 24, they lead us right into this here. And as we see this, let's just, again, recall the context because the context is going to inform everything Paul is getting ready to say. Again, idolatry is everywhere in real, tangible ways for the Corinthians. Now, pause again, because we always need remembering. Be careful. You don't just push this aside. The problem in our day is we've become so accustomed to idols and idolatry around us, even in us, that it may well be that we don't even see them anymore. Because we're just used to worshiping them and loving them more than God. And that's the reality of God giving over hearts to their own desires. And we saw that a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And so this is relevant for us. And so we've seen the context, idols, pagan temples, pagan sacrificial feasts. Paul, he addressed all of that, chapter 8 through chapter 10, verse 22. And now he turns to address another concern here, and he turns to the marketplace. And so he makes this point, in the marketplace, walk with a God-centered worldview. So verse 25, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, this verse is a very applicable verse here on so many issues for us today. You know, as one commentator, he said it well, and maybe a 
At least as I was reading it, I thought it was rather comical. But he says, Christ has not called them to be meat inspectors. Right. Hmm. You just think about how that might live and flesh itself out in our day. You know, there can be an appearance of religion, but in reality, it might just be Pharisaism. I'm not saying, like, with all the controversies and Christmas and stuff like that, all that's Pharisaism. I'm not saying that. But the big question is, is it, like, not just Christmas, but everything, gospel lens, in everything we do, not just a Pharisaism, a scrupulosity that we're not called to be and to be aiming after. As we see here, Paul's vision is not like what happens in December. His vision is much bigger. And so we are, and he mentions, and he talks about conscience here, which is right. You know, we're to take seriously the importance of conscience, but conscience is not a blank check. You know, you you just can't just say, well, you know, I can't do it, conscience. You know, conscience, (laughs) you know, this kind of subjective kind of, I'm not going to do it, conscience, over and over again. Now, I'm not saying that there may need to be times where that needs to be the case. We do need to stand on conscience, but we also need to see our consciences need and must be shaped and informed, not just by anything, but by the truth, by what is revealed by Scripture, not what is in your heart, not the world. And so we need to ask ourselves, What is shaping our conscience and what must shape our conscience is God's word. And so we need to see that. And then Paul, he continues in verse 26, quoting from the passage that Megan read from a moment ago, Psalm 24, and specifically Psalm 24, verse 1. And he says there, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, again, we are to come God-centered worldview, like in the marketplace, a God-centered view of everything. We're looking at the mean market through that lens. And as we saw back in chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, what did God say there? What did he, the Spirit of God say through Paul? Our bodies, chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, our bodies belong to who? To the Lord. So what? Glorify God with your body. And he's using a similar structure here, right? He's getting ready to say, so whether you eat or drink or whatever, right? All to the glory of God. And so here Paul is saying more. He's saying Everything belongs to the Lord. Everything is His. That meat there in the marketplace, Corinthians, whether it's devoted to an idol or not, it belongs to the Lord. Like, that God made that. Everything is His. 
You see what I mean? And see how Paul's directing us here to a God-centered worldview in everything we do. And so this extends into questions even around what you buy in our day and where you buy it. Now, you may be thinking one direction and me saying that, but I'm going a different direction. Now, I would say it's highly likely wherever you purchase your groceries or your Christmas gifts or where you go out to eat even, that they likely hold to something that directly goes against the Christian faith everywhere you go. And so these verses apply right there, here and now. And what would Paul say? You are not called to be meat inspectors. Gospel lens through everything and in everything. There are much bigger things than that, which he's heading towards, like that person who doesn't know Christ. So we're not called to be scrupulous meat inspectors. Do you hold to this? Do you hold to this? I can't buy here if you don't go here. I mean, everywhere we go, friends, if you're, if you're okay with buying somewhere where I guarantee you someone there at work is worshiping idols. Now, of course, if you're really a meat inspector, well, then you do need to be very scrupulous and make sure you are scrupulous as a meat inspector because we want good meat. <laughs> so... Please do that. But for us as believers, just see this Pharisaism that can creep into our lives. That lacks the power of God. That really lacks the gospel lens that Paul is setting forth here. And so Paul, he looks at the marketplace and then here he kind of turns and he further zeroes in here. And so in the home of an unbeliever, aim for the good of others. In the home of an unbeliever, aim for the good of others. And so he turns it now to consider, let's say you are invited to an unbeliever's home who have meat. (laughs) He's getting specifics of verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is said before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. And so the Corinthian people, they were a social people. And so invitations like this were part of their society and even integral to their society. And so as we just see this, though, here too, just notice something. Does the believer go off into a cave? Right? Is that where they are? Is that where you'll find your your believer? Christians, they're off in a cave somewhere doing the Christian thing in the little huddles in churches? No. Like Paul said in chapter 5, verse 19 through 20, he said, believers are not to go out of the world, but you are to be right there in it. We're not to hide away in our homes like there are our own little spiritual caves. Monasticism doesn't just It's not just found in Catholicism. It's found in Protestantism where we stay in our homes and we say, well, this is my monastic place where I live out my spirituality, but then I have nothing whatsoever to do with the world. 
I mean, has that, is that how we have learned the Christian faith in America? And so we're right to consider the unbelievers that we know. And even before they ask us, what are we going to do? We ask them, come for dinner. And so I just ask you, how are you utilizing your home and what God has given you for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel? How are you seeing your home through a gospel lens as God calls us to do? Would this even happen? Has this ever happened in your life? And I'm not talking about family. All of us have unbelieving family members. I'm talking about others, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers. Have they ever been in your home? And so here then, here they were in the home of an unbeliever. And so the question is, should they eat the food set before them or not? Well, I think you know the answer. In light of everything Paul has said so far, the answer is, yeah, <laughs> eat the food, right? Don't, don't ask any questions, just eat it. And so he sets that before them. However, if, as we see in verse 28, they tell you that the food they're about to offer to you has been offered to an idol, then don't eat it. Now again, Paul has in mind what? The gospel. The other person's good. He's not saying this is an issue about your conscience. As he says, if you've given thanks, now just pause. If you've given thanks, now just a theology for us as we are praying before our meals, right? We don't just kind of do that happenstance, but we recognize that this food I have right here I'm getting ready to eat, it's from God. And so it's not just like, Lord, thank you for the food. Amen. It is blessing God for what he has given. Unpause. So if you've given thanks, you're free to eat. And so this is about, who is this about? It's not about you. It's about the other person. Or even a fellow believer, perhaps a weaker brother or sister that may be with you as you're there with this unbeliever. And so what are you doing? You don't eat, or you eat, or you don't eat, mindful of the gospel. And that is where Paul draws the lines. That's where the lines are made, is in view of the gospel. What will maximize gospel proclamation and progression? That people would see and underline Jesus Christ in the gospel. So it's as the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, he said it well, which might sound paradoxical, but it's exactly what Paul is saying here. This is what Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., the reformer, Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, he said, a Christian man is a free lord over all things and subject to none. Yes, but he continues, a Christian man is a bondservant of all things and a servant of all. That's what Paul is saying here. This is the kind of heart that we are to have. 
this God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered worldview where we look at life and everything through that lens. We are free, yet we are servants of Christ in everything we do. Because our heartbeat is to be what? Verses 31 through 33. Our heartbeat is to be the glory of God in all things. So here we have that well-known passage that is rightly quoted again and again and again in sermon after sermon, in book after book, and more, where it says in verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now you may have not known the context, but now you do. And it makes complete sense what Paul is saying here. Whether you're eating idle food and all this stuff, or drinking, whatever you do, do it for God's glory. And this is the sweeping point that swallows up everything and all of life into it. You know, as John Piper, the pastor, theologian, author, he's known for saying, and rightly, and Helpfully so, he said, you can drink orange juice to the glory of God because of this verse. This verse is that sweeping. That in the morning, tying your shoes to the glory of God. This is the heartbeat behind all that Paul is saying here. As he is aiming not to offend anyone and aims to please everyone, verses 32 through 33, he does that not as a people pleaser. That's not what he's saying. If you know Paul, he is not a people pleaser. But in this passage, not eating or eating, he does that for their good and for God's glory. His vision is God and the gospel in Jesus Christ. And within that vision, love for God and love for others. And so with this purpose, that many may be saved. So he's not a relativist here. It's out of love for God and love for others that he eats or drinks with a God-centered, God-glorifying vision in all things. And so part of the question before us then is this. Does this even cross our minds? As you sit there, as you do this, as you eat that, as you go here, as you go there, as you sit Christmas or as you celebrate Easter or whatever you do, are you mindful of others and their good and God's glory? You are a witness everywhere you go. You are preaching something. What are you preaching? Paul is saying, brothers, sisters, you need to go and understand everywhere you go, you are a witness of Jesus Christ. This is the aroma of this passage. 
of people going everywhere, not as relativists, like I'm just going to try to please this person, please that person, I'm just going to try to make them happy, make them happy. That's not what he's saying. We're not a bunch of people pleasers, but we go out as witnesses to the truth of the gospel of God. So as we take in these verses then, let these worldview, heart-shaping truths shape you. Everything belongs to the Lord. The phone there in your pocket, or maybe it's not in your pocket, maybe it's in your purse, that belongs to the Lord. The keys you have there for your home or your car or whatever it is, maybe your, your workplace, those belong to God, not your employer. That building they're using belongs to God. The credit cards, the money, the shoes, your clothes, even your very body belongs to God. All of that and more are His. And so as we see this, and we aim to take up a God-centered, gospel-centered vision and lens of all things, we are right to ask of ourselves, what then are you doing with all of those things? They're not yours. And they won't go with you into the grave. So how are you using them to maximize the kingdom of God? and the glory of God. Even asking, how are you aiming your life at glorifying God in all things? How are you aiming your life at glorifying God in all things? This is the purpose of your life. That is the purpose of my life. That is the purpose of this church, of His church, everywhere and anywhere. His praise, His honor, His renown, under His word, by the power of His Spirit. This is a way that we are to carry ourselves. It isn't aimless. It's aimed, even disciplined, towards a God-glorifying, God-enjoying life of faith. So this sort of life, what does it do? It aims at the word. It reads the word. Not because it's like, oh man, i got to read this. It's like, Lord, it is glorious to be in your presence, to read your words. I, when I read the word, I hear God speak. And so you get in the Word, you read it, you meditate upon it when day and night you pray the Word, you pray, you grow, and you aim to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the grace of God and the knowledge of God. You make disciples and you go out as a disciple maker because that's what each and every single one of you are and are to be. You go to church you become a member of a church. You raise up, you go to work, you eat, you play, you read, you learn, you love, you share the gospel, and you go to bed and you rest to the glory of God. Because you're satisfied in God above all things. It's a life on the altar lived out by faith.
in love, in Christ, as worshipers living in the fear of the Lord, adoring Him, confessing Him, being hospitable, believers in your life, your life in theirs, not hiding, serving, forgiving, mission, going, giving, orienting the entirety of your life towards the kingdom. That's what we're to do. That's what we're to be doing. So people who do everything to the glory of God, and then lastly here, a people who imitate Christ. Verse 11, verse chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is not an authoritarian. He wants them to be like Christ, just like he himself longs to be like Christ. This is what you're displaying. You are to display Christ in you. We're to do that here. When unbelievers come in, when believers come in, what do they see? They don't see, oh, tradition this, hymns this, this, that, the organ, the pews, the building, the the stained glass windows. That's not what they're mainly going to see. That's not mainly what we want them to see. What we want them to see is Christ. That's what we're to be here, is like him, to be like Christ. And we're to do that together. We're to do that alone and we're to do that at work. And so see who you and we are aiming to be like. We are aiming to be like Christ. So who are you trying to be like this morning? You have no uh, lack of options before you, and I'm not saying that even in a positive way. Our culture sets many options before you this day. Actors, actresses, politicians, and you're like, what? No. Well, yeah, it sure seems like it. Leaders, writers, artists, musicians, engineers, doctors, parents, friends, that well-known pastor, that well-known theologian. Who are you trying to be like? Well, see here, friends, see who you are to be like. You and we and all of us in Christ are to be like Christ. And so the sweeping call of this passage, this Christmas, is that as those who are in Christ live in accord with Christ for others' good and God's glory. And right now, not in theory, but in practice, Consider Paul's words this morning. How will we be a people who seek the good of others? How will we be a people who do all we do to the glory of God? How will we be a people who imitate Christ? Let's ask these questions of ourselves before the Lord this morning as we pray and as we respond. And if you're here,
and you don't know Christ right now, you need to see that you are not called to be satisfied in vain things, empty things, idols and idolatry, and pride and sin and rebellion. You were made by God for God. And your sin has separated you from God. But God, in his mercy and his incredible, bountiful grace, he sent his very own son, Christmas, to come and save you, a sinner. That everything you are not, he is. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He died the death that you're going to die so that you may be risen with him and be with him forever in glory after glory in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever. Christ came and died for you. And so if you're here and you don't know Christ this morning, the call is run away from the tsunami and run to Christ. Put your faith in him. Repent and believe the gospel. And so may we and may all of us respond to the Lord and his word today as we pray and as we respond through song. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we pray as you have set before us a vision that encompasses and is sweeping of everything in life. Help us, Lord, to take up this vision. Help us not to take off our gospel lens, but to take up our gospel lens in everything we do, which will be costly. It will require much of us, but help us take up that cross and follow Christ until the end. We may come before you and you would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of us, but because of Christ. And so help us, Lord, to respond and ask these hard questions of ourselves. And if there's any here right now who don't know you, we pray that you would help them to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to put their faith in him. And so help them come. Help them respond. And help us all respond, we ask to your word in Jesus' name. Amen.